our human complexity is so rich. And because we have simplified it down to, I am not worthy, but God is worthy, then we are dismissing all of our humanity along the way. And it just, it's not, it was never intended to work that way. Episode 50. 50 episodes. That's wild. Mandy Capehart joins us on the Faith in the Fresh Five podcast. I'm your host, Ro Hattie, coming at you from Treaty 7 Territory in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. A podcast to help guide and show the pathways through decolonizing and deconstructing Christianity. I'm happy you're here. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and leave a review, five stars, wherever you're picking up this podcast. It goes a long way to help, and I appreciate all of the folks who are sharing our podcast far and wide. This episode continues a theme from the previous episode with Micah Morgan, who is a bivocational minister and a licensed counselor. We're sticking with the theme surrounding the ideas of walking with grief, listening to our bodies, cultivating depth. To do that, we start with a story. Mandy shares her experience growing up in white evangelicalism. We quickly pivot into her experience deconstructing Christian worship. That's a story I think many who have grown up in the church will be able to connect with, especially those from evangelicalism. Her story wraps around the machine of Bethel. Yeah, boo. Then we talk about how loss and grief spirals and yet catalyzes something new, at least the potential for it if you choose to walk through it. We're all in this pursuit of figuring out what it means to struggle through lament and sorrow, especially in this pandemic world. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about what the search for belonging community looks like. Let's talk about holding space for others as we dissect the need to find wholeness and liberation for all. Healing can happen, so let's get at it. guests that I invite onto the show, I ask them to share the traditional lands from where they are are currently situated on. So Mandy, where are you right now? Yes, so I'm in, living in Southern Oregon and there were over 30 different tribes that lived in this area and shared the land. So traditionally it's Shasta land, um, but basically they are, there's a conglomeration of the confederated tribes of the grand ronde and it's beautiful around here often the only connection for canadians who grew up in the 80s to oregon is the oregon trail did you say oregon no oregon (laughs) it's the oregon trail as we pronounce it here um only playable on the five and a half inch floppy discs correct uh a lot of uh diseases out in Oregon, as according to the game, uh, y'all still only have, um, what are they called? Uh, wagons yeah. as transportation? Yeah, you're right. We only mm-hmm. uh, travel on those covered wagons. We lose wheels constantly, and dysentery yeah. is a very, very big problem for us around it's, here. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, Devastating. Sh- just wish you could... I wish we could find a cure there. and Someday. Maybe we'll do a camp send a kib to dysentery camp no that's i wonder if, yeah that probably did exist it might have i digress <laughs> totally digress um i'm sure that's beautiful land there it must mi- mimic i don't know if think i've ever been but it must mimic uh the lower mainland in vancouver all the green mm-hmm. ocean how far are you from the ocean. I think it takes us about two to two and a half hours to get over. We have a mountain pass to cross, but other than that, it you're right. The whole Northwest from Northern California up is pretty similar. It just changes yeah. temperature a little bit. Two and a half. Well, that's kind of far. It is, but it's worth it. <laughs> I miss the ocean. I used to live right on it. Where did you used to live? Up in Lake Stevens, right outside of Seattle. So ocean was easy access. Very cold. Is a place I have been. Mm -hmm. 
You know why I went to Seattle? I don't. Why did you go to Seattle? I wonder if I've shared this story someplace on... Suddenly, this is about me. <laughs> this story on the podcast. I went to Seattle in 2007 because the church that I was interning at at the time, and that's what you needed as part of completing your MDiv, was you needed to intern somewhere. And so they dropped me in this um, large-ish evangelical church, of course, um, but just outside of Calgary, so in, in a smaller town. Small town, yeah, um, or a city now. <laughs> and they went out there because they wanted to attend a multi-site church planning conference okay. put on by, guess, <laughs> everyone put in their guesses, and locked in Mars, Mars Hill. Hill. Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. Congratulations. And as the story goes, oh, thank you. We went to two of his, three, three of his services, two in person, one at a multi-site. We heard the th same <laughs> sermon three times. It was yeah. whatever. <laughs> it was weird then. Um, obviously weird then. But the cool thing was, A, Seattle, we got to hang out downtown Seattle, but we also checked out other churches and we wound up checking out, and this is the story I always tell, so everyone knows it, but uh, Eugene Cho's church at that time, Mm. Um, which now is in the old Mars Hill building, but he had this small little nondescript church, and they were arguing about uh, the potluck. <laughs> and it was just like, this is more my speed. <laughs> Who's bringing baked beans? Don't say no one. That's much better. It was more like, why are you not bringing baked beans to our... I think there was like a problem with like not enough food or oh, something. No. Like someone only bringing like the choice KFC and like... I but it was a little odd. But it was, it was like the juxtaposition between Quest and, yeah. and Mars Hill couldn't be like more distinct. Uh, anyways. I got very... Anyways. Yeah. Mm. I digress. But, but that whole culture that... Maybe not that uh, uh, Mars Hill embodied in terms of its rampant abuse, but the cultural aspects of how it embodied uh, worship and was basically one of the beacons of contemporary evangelicalism at the time. Right. That is part of your story, is it not? Yeah, to a degree, it really is. I got very lucky in that I didn't, I didn't know about Mars Hill because I was very sheltered in my own, like in my own way. When it came to anything to do with faith, I was very self-driven. And so if it's interested me, I was in. If someone else told me to be interested in it, I was out. And so it wasn't really till I got into, to Southern Oregon and into college that I decided this is the direction I'm going to go. And so my experience was all of these friends I, I had that were beautiful people telling me, oh, we should play this song. You should listen to this. I'm like, I didn't grow up on DC Talk. I grew up on ACDC. I don't, I don't know what that song is. Yeah, so I was hearing things like, um, my husband at the time when we were just dating, I took him to a Derek Webb and Jars of Clay concert and we had the best time. And I was like, how did I not know about these guys? They sound, they're beautiful. I love this music. They're musicianship. They're brilliant um, artists. And he was just like, yeah, this is all we were allowed to listen to growing up. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> sorry about your luck. So all of our music references are very, very different. He's like Stephen Curtis Chapman. I'm like Stephen Tyler. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's that's like a good connection point um, because it doesn't pigeonhole you into like nondescript evangelical land. Oh, not even close. Yeah. Yet the grips of worship, because you wound up going into worship, or yeah. or, or you were, and by worship, I'm of course using that in terms of music. Yes. But were you always connected into the music side, the worship side of things? Yeah, I served as a worship leader for 16 years. So when I got to college, I ended up connecting with Campus Crusade for Christ, which is, of hmm. course, the uh, outreach ministry. Where do they know? Is this well? I think that's what it's still called. I haven't paid attention. I feel like they took the crusade out. They may have because you know that would the be smart. Crusades. <laughs> oh Lord, um, yeah, that's a good question. I think they might just be crew now. Um, 
yeah, I think they're just crew. But at the time it was a, we were catalytic. So it was just a bunch of kids running this organization and trying to create community. And they were the friends I fell in with, which I loved them. They were wonderful. And uh, a friend of mine and I really spearheaded so much of it, but um, I was a musician growing up all my years in choir and meeting my friends. They were all guitar players and singers. And so that was what we did. That, so I was the quintessential, like there's a drum circle with a bunch of guitars and a fire pit and kids singing worship songs at night in college. That was, that was my experience for a lot of it. And, and it was fantastic. I cannot tell you at the time it was like, Pinnacle the bees knees adulthood for me like those <laughs> you made it bonfires yeah. i felt like okay i belong i've found a tribe of people that can hold me close but um <laughs> yeah leading worship was interesting because again like i didn't have a lot of knowledge of those songs but i could read sheet music and i'm can blend in with people very easily so we led worship uh let's see one two three different churches in college and uh, then we ended up at the church we're at now, and I'd been leading there for quite some time. I only stepped down a few years ago. So my whole in- adult life has been pretty enmeshed with Christian worship music and everything that goes along with it. You make it sound as though it was just adult life. Like, if Did you grow up in the church? I did and I didn't. So we were yeah, raised as, yeah. as Lutherans as kids. And when my parents okay. separated, I was probably, I think I was nine or 10 when they separated. And by middle school, attending church was my choice. And so I ended up being more involved in soccer and school and other things. So I didn't go. And then as an yeah, adult, okay. that was where I got to high school and the people I was spending time with that were connected to churches didn't rub me the right way. Like we just didn't bond. There was nothing that I was really interested in connecting with them about. And so it wasn't until I got to college and thought, well, my roommates and my friends and the people in class I'm hanging out with are involved in things I don't want to get involved in. This group of people seems to be just chill and not worried about getting stoned on the weekend. So like I'm good over here. And I had wonderful friends but yeah it wasn't until i became an adult that i decided well maybe my faith is super important to me and let me ask some questions and get involved so it became a social experiment for me at first really building Mm -hmm. friendships Mm -hmm. and connections and then yeah yeah and it grew from there you found your people i did and ironically none of us are attending church consistently right now um you still have those people oh yes they're our closest friends (laughs) oh cool we um friends there's a good (laughs) handful of us yeah we one of them went off to be a pastor he recently stepped down um and of course as it happens in small groups of friends most of us married each other as well which is so funny so we're all connected and it's really interesting to see and have these conversations now that we're you know in our late 30s and we all have children and we're talking about like what we experienced as young adults the stuff we said to each other that was so bizarre Unpacking behavior (laughs) management and that theology of how traumatizing and how just weird it was. Thinking back to like how aggressive we were in in some beliefs that just created boxes that we didn't even really want to live in, but we thought it was expected or necessary. And and to this day, like I still have friends that are on leadership with crew that are super meaningful to me. But I'm just finding my own way now after the fact of realizing like. Was so much that the practice of faith at that time in my life just couldn't touch, couldn't handle it. And that was where from the beginning and probably from a young age that as I experienced it and I would hear something told to me as, you know, not as gospel truth, but as like, hey, this is the most important part of faith. No, this is the most important part of faith. I would take those things and hold them up against what I felt was true and had so much dissonance left and right. And so it was always just like a kind of a sandpaper situation for me. And so as an adult now, looking back at my friends who did grow up in the church and talking with them and saying like, oh, you're, you're just now catching on to that aspect of what you thought was true. Okay, good. It's, it's, it's time. Let's, hmm. let's move forward from it. But Well, it, you didn't just jump there. Mm-hmm. You spent probably uh, how long? Maybe 10, 15 years sort of in the engine of it? Yeah, definitely. I did. I was, like I said, I was a worship leader for a long time. I was leading youth groups. I was leading 
conferences. I was coordinating prayer teams and outreaches and attending conferences. And with all of it, it was so hard because I wanted the belonging. I wanted the boost to my mm. faith. And and yet at the same time, I've always been a very like, don't tell me what to do kind of a person, just immaturity at some levels, but also recognizing like I have discernment. I can trust myself. I can trust that God will speak to me. Um, there was a time in my early life that I was involved in prophetic prayer ministries. And there would be people that would walk up and say, I have this word for you. And I was like, cool, but keep it to yourself because I don't have any relationship with you. And <laughs> yeah. I am completely confident that if God wants to speak something directly to me, he's going to speak directly to me. I have no doubt mm -hmm. in my mind. And that was actually the driving factor that really saved, I think, my sanity through all of it. Because as I've been involved in all these ministries and, um, and projects and churches, I have always pushed back with the confidence that God is who he says he is, and he's not who everyone around me says. So that means I can trust my intuition because he says I can. That means I can trust the scriptures to be coherent. And if they're being used to abuse people, I can trust that that's not his heart. So it was just really interesting as I have navigated these waters for 20 years, recognizing all of the cognitive dissonance and finding a way to lovingly push back, but also keep my own sanity and like practice faith in a way that doesn't cause harm to other people. Because I feel like that's a very oh, underrated perspective, I guess. Don't cause harm. Question mark. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds foolish to say it that way, but at the same time, how many moments have we witnessed someone's faith causing harm to another person? That's hmm. just not the heart of God. I'll, I'll, ne I'll never remember or never forget rather this moment that uh, we were on a, I was in crew and we were on this uh, mission trip. It was like a mission project for the summer. And we did this like how to evangelize in the different nations. Okay. So we were broken up 40 of us into groups. And I was like, all right, this is really interesting. And I was 21 at the time and they broke us into each nation group. So I was part of Europe and we were in this area where we had frozen vegetables and frozen chicken. And the, the idea was somebody has to get food to all the nations. So we were separated physically in these groups. There was America over here with a table full of food. We were given frozen food, Japan, or I'm sorry, um, South America was given like tortilla chips and Cheetos and soda. Africa had, what did they have? Oh, they had jars of baby food. Um, Asia was given bowls of rice. And then we realized as we're, and we had the ability to travel and we were like, as Europe, we were thinking, okay, we have frozen food. You can't eat that. But America has a lot of food. And we were trying to convince them, give us your food. We'll go take it to these other places. Long story short, America was keeping all of their food for themselves for all the reasons they had all their talking points. We were supposed to go to each group of our friends and figure out why they didn't have food to eat. And it was all this picture of the church. And then we realized half of our friends are missing and there was the unreached peoples. There was a group of people that had been stuck in a, in the building we were at hiding and just waiting. And it was all about trying to teach us that when you go to countries, you have to learn how they communicate and how they have food to eat and they have nourishment like in the bottom of the bowl of rice was fresh chicken and we just had to dig through the rice to find the chicken this seems like a really crazy story because it is and i look back yeah. on it and i think i get what they were going for i totally do but the supremacy perspective of i have mm. what is necessary for all of these people and i am just the one that can show up and show them hey africa you're eating baby food your growth isn't you need to do more than, than eat baby food, Pre, you know, presupposes that I know what's best for them. And the more I have grown in my faith, the less I have believed that to be true. I am now at the mm -hmm. point of like, I know very little. My certainty is out the window. Thank God. Because all it did for me was mm -hmm. create this idea that I'm going to show up and present as opposed to show up and be present and learn something from someone else. Cause I, while I have experienced a lot in life and gone to many places, I have such a very small window that I am looking through. And so anyway, I guess that's, I don't even know if I answered your question, but it was this crazy. 
yeah, I've been in the beast belly of it for a while. <laughs> Story had uh, slight colonial undertones. Oh, a little bit. Just like a slight flurry. <laughs> you also, I had to bring this up because it's always hilarious to me. Um, hilarious in like only to me kind of way. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I, I did the worship thing too. Not as not in my adult years as much though. Um, having <laughs> basically the church that took me to Seattle was the last evangelical church I was a part of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so one of the things as I was processing my own faith was pretty a pretty harsh um, reaction from contemporary worship or, or music um, in in contemporary Christianity, usually evangelicalism, and not really processing how that would be taken by other people. And so I remember lots of times folks coming through um my first church plant and like we're just talking and you know what things look like and i'd always just rag on music like ah we don't we don't do that michael w smith trash or uh what was (laughs) that's so old um (laughs) uh, who is the next guy who is who's just as yeah uh you will never hear chris tomlin in this yeah (laughs) it's like that's just like that's not our jam like Mm. but pretty harsh about it anyways i've somewhat repented of that (laughs) but it's just kind of funny to me of when you're caught up in the engine which used to be like a vineyard hill song thing and then vineyards like oh it's a little too commercial which they did on purpose kudos to them but um then they were just replaced by bethel and so now it's like a bethel hill song dominating ccli And uh, it's boring, and everyone <laughs> sings it. And if you like it, that's okay. You know, there's no, no shortage of options for you to go find a church that's singing the same damn songs week yeah. in and week out. The okay. same stuff. And on top of that, this is an aside, every time you sing it and report to CCLI, someone's getting licensing money. So all these weird and abusive churches are getting paid because you sing. Yeah. Anyways, I digress. <laughs> uh, you are an um, uh, alumnus? Alumni. Uh, an alumni? Yeah. Uh, of Bethel something something? I don't know what the school is. You went to one yeah. of them? Yeah, I was a um, Bethel tell School us of everything. Worship student. Yeah. Um, Tell I, us everything but nothing, though. Everything but nothing. Be yeah. meaningless, but talk a lot. Got it. I'm good at that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I, yeah, I went for two weeks. Uh, it was a very short school of worship, which I appreciated because I had a daughter. I have, have a little daughter at the time she was young, and so I left my family to go do this uh, for two weeks in yeah. 2018, I think. And oh, okay. I, okay. at the time had been leading really consistently. And I've always, like I said, been a musician and love vocals. I love singing and creating music and bringing meaning to people through the words as well. And so for me, it was my opportunity to go and learn how to be more effective as a leader on a musical stage, but also how to be more intentional in how I was writing both music and mm, the lyrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I took a now lot of the classes. Yeah, and it was fascinating to me. I really appreciated so much that I learned there. And actually I made a couple friends that I still talk to to this day. Um, but where I con- landed when I was done was recognizing that I don't think I'm supposed to be a worship leader anymore. And it was really guttural for me, just this idea of hmm. what does it mean to step down for me? And what have I attached my life to that I, that says like, why can't I let this go? Why am I not wanting hmm. to step back hmm. when I know that hmm. I'm struggling I've always been the person that pushes back on a lot of song choices just because um, I'm like, we're shouting joyfulness at people who are brokenhearted. Like I'm watching yeah. people crying and, and you're shouting, we've got the joy, we've got the joy. Like what, where's the dissonance? Again, there's so much dissonance mm-hmm. and no one's paying any attention mm-hmm. to it or mm-hmm. yelling at me when I talk about it. So mm-hmm. leaving um, my family to go down to Bethel was a really, it was actually a really special experience because I hadn't lived alone since, ever. (laughs) So I lived alone for two weeks and actually spent more time getting to know my own heart and where my faith was headed than I did anything to do with, with music. It was all about what does it look like to lead myself well 
now and going forward before I try to lead anyone else in any perspective, in the house, from a stage, in a church. So I came back from Bethel and I actually stepped down from everything. I think it took me like six to eight months to do it, but I did um, because it was after my mom had died in 2016 and I realized this is me, you know, grieving everything that I care about. I've lost family. I've lost friends. I'm now I'm giving up this connection to music, which as an adult, we don't always have a lot of opportunities to practice those things anyway. So it was part of my healing process to recognize, well, this is not, this is no longer something I can align myself with. This is no longer who I am or what I stand for. And Bethel is such a loaded gun because I mean, the individual relationships with people that I have or had there, but also have phenomenal. The, the machine of it all is so complicated and traumatizing on so many levels because there's a lot of confusion involved. And there's a lot of confusion for people who are coming in looking for answers and looking for clarity. And then there's confusion because it's loud almost all the time and it's busy mm. all the time. And um, you're always like, I, do, I remember constantly waiting in line to get into the, into the rooms for the classes or trying to just get in line to get a cup of coffee or sitting to have a quiet moment. There's so many people and that's just the nature of mega churches, right? But that's something that has never really resonated for me because I'm, I'm a very, I would rather have a conversation like this and be really honest than necessarily have a relationship with 30 people I'm probably never going to see again. And so it was really, it was really hard for me because I came away from connections with people thinking like, that's my new best friend. We're going to write letters and talk and be consistent. Like for me, that's really mm -hmm. what Jesus called us into is build connection, get to know people, be vulnerable, mm -hmm. go deep, not mm -hmm. connect in this grand scheme. And so I didn't, I came away from it thinking like, I can respect a lot of what happens there. I really struggle with a lot of it. And yet they're in the land of capitalism. So they're doing what we're all doing. It's just happening in such a um, emotionally charged and easily manipulated way that, uh, yeah, it's, it's a hard one for me to talk about, especially because uh, a few years ago there were, I don't remember exactly who started the whole thing, but there was a YouTube series that, or somebody came out and said, this is what happened when I was a student there and, and like lifelong four years, it's kind of a student thing. And it was so painful because you're hearing people that you respect and appreciate or that you're friends with being maligned or, um, or confessing that they've done these awful things to people and you're the grief that comes from that and from the broken trust and the, the number of secondary losses that come out of it are just innumerable and so complex that I think that's often why people can't even talk about it. You know what I mean? Just that I don't know where to start talking about this and everybody wants to talk about it. And 90% of the people are just angry and accusatory when they talk about it because they can't get past that part of their own pain. And so it's just, it's such a complex thing but that is, anyway so that was my experience i actually i'm very glad that i did it despite it uh completely changing the whole direction of my <laughs> adult life at the time which i suppose that's what i went there for so mission accomplished question mark <laughs> mission accomplished thank you george bush mm -hmm. you made it <laughs> was it safe to say that there wasn't a single catalyst that made you strike an aha moment that, oh, I'm out, I'm done with this, mm. or, or was there? Like, because you're, you're weaving a story of the, the connection points and the value of, of time in the church and also in your time, only two weeks uh, at, mm. at that school. And then the response from that was a full exit. Yeah. And it wasn't a, you know, something monumental, like you didn't have a YouTube series about all the crazy things. Okay. It was, what, what was going on inside? I think it was more of a recognition that when my mom died in 2016, I gave myself a week to 
cope and process and do whatever it is I thought I needed to do. And then on day seven, I decided I'm either going to step away from my faith wholeheartedly, completely, or I'm going to do whatever I can to strip it down to what it needs to be. And if that means stripping everything down, then that's what Mm -hmm. that means. And so at 20, by the time I got to Bethel, I had gone on a couple of retreats. Um, I'd gotten involved with some small groups and quit some other things, done a number of things to like, okay, what is, who am I on this side of loss? What does this mean for my life? And what is meaningful going Mm -hmm. forward? And so I Mm -hmm. think when I got home from Bethel, I recognized what I am contributing in my community and what I am gaining in my community through the vehicle of being a worship leader is no longer meaningful for me in the way that it once was. So it is now superfluous and must go. And so from there, you know, it's been four years now, what happened, what really nail in the coffin for me, I think was in 2020, we started the the year, my family with a miscarriage and we have one daughter, but we'd had years of infertility up until then. And so she was a surprise and this pregnancy was a surprise and then surprise it's gone that fast. Um, in addition to at the time going through exiting from a very uh, toxic workplace with a very, very narcissistic direct uh, boss at the time Hmm. and the anniversary of losing my mom and then Mm -hmm. COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And so I'm Mm -hmm. spiraling personally at that time, trying to just navigate what, where is up? Does anyone have an idea where my up has gone? And Mm. when the shutdown occurred and uh, George Floyd was killed shortly thereafter. I, I broke in a way that I hadn't in a very long time. In the sense of like I, like I said, I'm I'm not good at necessarily being told what to do, but I am very mindful about justice and protecting those who are unable to care for themselves or being a voice or lending my platform, whatever that looks like, to people who deserve an opportunity to be heard. And in the environment where I'm in. There's not a lot of diversity. There's not a lot of um, opportunities for those kinds of conversations to happen. And what I recognized was so much of the church, global church now, right, entrenched itself in this act of self-protection, making sure their certainty and security and uh, safety was in place, that their tribe was protected, that Hmm. they were covered and that their principles were sound that it became such an us versus them mentality. I just, I was so fed up. I was like, at no point can you extrapolate scripture and keep the heart of Jesus intact and maintain this virulent us versus them that was being Mm. pushed forward. And it killed me because here I am creating opportunities in my own life to draw people in and I'm listening to them call me heretic and accuse me of all kinds of things. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, that's okay. I, yeah, yeah, I'm okay with that label because it doesn't actually stick. Like that doesn't, that's meaningless to me. It might mean something to you, but what it means to you is none of my business. So it was interesting as I, as the year progressed and I would get so just pissed off and grieving and angry. My husband kept reminding me to um, go back to spiral dynamics theory I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a it's a brilliant growth hierarchy. It's very straightforward, but essentially everything in life uh, as culture or as a civilization, we kind of spiral upward. We expand and include where we were, pieces of what served well, but we expand into a greater understanding of who we're becoming. And um, Phil Drysdale is a teacher in, I think he's in Europe somewhere, that has a whole series unpacking the concept. It's not a new concept, but the idea that organized religion really lives in this in this level of the spiral that is very inwardly like group focused and obsessed with safety security and certainty remembering that reminded me that i've been removed from that mentality for most of my adult life i tried very hard to belong and i behaved in ways that were always causing dissonance in myself and had to reconcile with that in my own right and take responsibility for what I said or didn't say, but the idea that the church is just doing what the church knows to do to survive gave me full permission to step away and say, I can love the church really well from a distance. I can be involved in relationships that are 
helpful to the people around us and not causing harm. And I can lovingly call out harm from the inside because I'm still a part of my, like my pastors are some of the most beautiful people I've ever met. And they are the reason why I'm still connected because I see so much of what I've been chasing for decades in their heart, in the way that they lead and their community. Mm. And it's, I mean, they're my, they're my connection <laughs> back to it still. And mm. so it's been really just, you're right. It's not one thing. It's been the avalanche of things that finally caught up with me to say like, do you need to belong or can you create a place of belonging? It for me, I was like, oh, well, that's what I do everywhere I go. I try to create a place of belonging for myself and everyone. Okay, easy. I can do that. So it became almost painless. It wasn't, but it, but in that moment, you know, I have this revelation of create belonging where you go. Good. Done. I appreciate your vulnerability in sharing your story. One thing that I pulled out was the time frame mm. and that your journey wasn't one that there was a single catalyst and then everything became black and white and you painted a story really from your mom's passing all the way to the start of the pandemic, which is nearly four years mm. and the process that you were going through over that time to wind out. Like it was that's not a short no. period of time. <laughs> um, yet I suppose if you had encountered your grief earlier, it may have been shorter, but uh, there are no time frames when it comes to figuring out just actually that's it. Yeah. To figuring out. Yeah. Well, let's transition then to um, questions around your work now. Mm. Um, before, actually, before that, I, I totally resonate. And I wanted to bring it up when you were talking about, oh, I wanted to go to Bethel to try to also gain skill around writing. Mm -hmm. And man, I wish more worship folks who are generally the most talented around uh, creation or, or music, like the artistic creative elements, mm -hmm. to give them the space to do more creative things within worship like it's so counterintuitive that all these folks would go through a program or or what have you um with the top two or three <laughs> you know organizations out there and then just go back home and keep on reiterating the same stuff to me that's right. maddening mm -hmm. like why don't these folks write songs about the monuments and places and people in their midst yeah. in their neighborhoods in their cities the power that that could bring rather than everyone singing the same i don't even know what people are singing now <laughs> what was the last thing good good father yeah oh, that was to a minute me, oceans. ago but there yeah. you go oceans yeah that's like pretty fresh for me um but that was probably like 10 years ago yeah i mean it was a while anyway. yeah so hmm. um i i i appreciate that things haven't come quickly for you it's been a discovery uh you, after your mom passed in 2016 and you kind of went through different experiences in life you then at some point um I don't know if it was a light bulb moment. Tell us, what drew you into a deeper study surrounding grief? Hmm. Yeah, well, I have lost someone probably every year of my life or something or some expectation. So grief has always been pretty close to my life. It didn't traumatize me as much as it did after, until after my mom died. What, losing her was such a blow because she's your mom and we had a great relationship and there's a lot I could say there. So anyway, I recognized within probably two weeks of being home. I mean, I was, I was leading worship when I got the phone call to get on a plane and come find, come see her to say goodbye. Hmm. I had the choice to stay for the second set that I had committed to leading or to leave. And I chose to stay and I missed saying goodbye to my mom by 30 minutes. And I like mm -hmm. to this day remind mm -hmm. myself 
my faithfulness to my commitment is okay. I got to see my mom mm. a couple weeks prior. Everything mm. is, you know what I mean? Like trying to yeah, just yeah, undermine yeah. the guilt narrative. But yeah. um, within a couple of weeks, my friends and family and connected friend people at church just didn't know what to do with me. And I'm not a, a lilting flower. I'm not one that will sit on the sidelines and say, oh, I'm totally fine. Thank you so much. Hi. Yeah. Good to see you. I'm the person that says, I'm not okay. My mom just died of cancer. I live in a town where no family lives. And I see you all once a week and you ask, how are you? And you're completely blown away that I'm not okay. So I became, again, like sandpaper to a lot of circumstances with people who were grieving. And this was all pre-run by um, our, my husband's best friend died. Now it's been almost nine or 10 years. I, I think, I think it's been nine years this year. Um, and they were part of our church as well. And his wife is like a sister to me and leading up to my mom's death, no one knew what to do with her either. People actually mm. forgot that he had died and asked her questions about how he was doing. And I was like, Oh, I might, no. I might go to jail for no, choking no. the life out of someone today. This might happen. It just, it blew me away. And so after my mom died, the onslaught of platitudes and spiritual bypassing and dismissiveness and aren't you okay and timelines and expectations and all of the garbage that was handed to me became so nauseating that I continued to push back. And I know I alienated people because I was like, don't talk to me unless you have nothing to say. In the most loving way, I want you to be quiet and come to me and hear me instead of trying to teach me. In that yes. instance, this is my, I do have the supreme hand in my story because it's my story. And so as the years mm, went on and yes. I did this unraveling and just found my way, how to connect with spirituality, even though somewhere in the back of my, my head, faith had told me if I'd only laid hands on her more, she would have healed. If I'd only prayed harder, right? Yeah, all the, yeah. all the Ew, garbage. Gross. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when the pandemic, when it started, I was <laughs> watching, I mean, from the beginning, hearing about the um, outbreak in China and thinking like that country is going to be under duress, under waves of grief for generations to come. And then as it migrated and I realized what was happening, I was like, I don't want to live in a world that lacks understanding of grief. I want grief literacy to be a normalized conversation. And we can't do that because everyone's so freaking uncomfortable being uncomfortable. Nobody wants to have the painful conversation or admit hmm. that they're in pain or that they're hurting. And so mm -hmm. I decided when the US shut down for two weeks, I picked my daughter up from school I went home and I watched the news and they said they were going to shut it down the next day. I didn't send her back, but I said, I am, I am going to have an opportunity to speak to this in some way. And I don't know exactly what that is yet. And then two weeks later, I lost my job and I thought, I know what that job is now. <laughs> my job is to write mm -hmm. this out. And even if it's just my story, um, I'm not going to sit back and pretend to know everything about grief and pretend to know because it's all a theory, right? All of it. Mm -hmm. It's all just head and heart trying to make sense. But what I did find was some ways that I moved through grief in the years prior were so meaningful and they were all integrative practices that looked at my experience as a human, as a whole self model of head, heart, body, and spirit, instead of saying, oh, well, the heart is deceitfully wicked or the head is untrustworthy because I'm full of sin and I'm full of thoughts of the flesh. <laughs> also you. Right, yeah. all of it, all of that stuff that came up in through through evangelical Christianity into my narrative, whether I'd ever accepted it or not. And even purity culture, those things recognizing like your body is untrustworthy and you need to mm -hmm. set it aside. I'm like, actually my body is incredibly wise. I need to mm -hmm. become present with it so I can internalize mm -hmm. what I'm trying to learn and heal from because I tell you what, my body is manifesting the pain. It deserves attention mm -hmm. too. So all of that really spiraled Let's go good. into this book, this 31 day yeah. book that I wrote um, yeah. on my own story, but also that just incorporated so many little tiny pieces of faith practices from all over and wisdom from people much smarter than me. And it became very practical because there was a, a wildfire that annihilated our towns. There's four towns um, near us that are just, you know, five minutes away along the, the freeway. And two and a half of them burned um, because of this wildfire in September of 2020. And so here I am turning around mm. and realizing 
I'm still in the middle of writing this book, but now my friends and neighbors have lost their homes and they are unhoused and there's already a housing crisis here. And what can I offer besides silence and, and, you know, and space and money for whatever it, like, what can I offer? And I recognized, I'm like, I can invite people in to a small group mm. and we could try to do this practically because if I know anything, it's how to hold space for people. I can do that. And through that, it's become this beautiful practice for coaching and um, really getting an opportunity to speak to churches about how to be more intentional and effective as a safe place for people who are grieving. Because if you want to be the safest place for people, then you have to learn how to do it. And we, we don't know how at this point, you know, it's all platitudes and scriptures and, and bypassing and minimizing and centering and all the things, all the buzzwords. Right. But um, it's, it's not a journey I ever expected to go on. That's for sure. You know, you were embarking on that journey, whether you chose to or not, and then you opted to, <laughs> I don't know, embrace yeah. it. Yeah. I don't know. No, you're right. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. it. Grief is not a respecter of persons. It doesn't differentiate. And I like to tell people when they're like, oh, I never, never thought this would happen to me or you know, they say, I never thought I'd experience something like this or this pain is unbearable. I'm like, life and grief are two sides of the same coin. Like, I don't, I'm so sorry that no one's prepared you for this, but that coin flips for all of us at some point. Why not be prepared ahead of time? Why not talk about it, you know? I'm always somewhat dismayed or perhaps shocked that there are folks who, who are so disconnected from grief and I can comprehend that there's some aspect, obviously not some, but a culturally and also if you do the religious thing or religiously formative elements that shape us to ignore grief or the hardships mm -hmm. to our detriment. I wonder what your take is now coming out of... We'll use this as the straw man, okay? We'll use this and juxtapose it, but it's not just this one thing. Out of Christian worship, it's centered, of course, around praise and worship, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's always joy down in my heart to stay, mm -hmm. and I'm so happy, so very happy. And we have no concept, even within our music, which informs our worship, around lament. Right. Um, I, I, and I would, I would use the word incompetent. We're just totally incompetent how to collectively, and these are folks probably outside of liturgical traditions that has a little bit more, um, but incompetent around formative aspects of holding grief and lamentation. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is within church spaces, contemporary church spaces? I think. You hit the nail on the head why one of the first songs I ever wrote as a young adult was called Man of Sorrows. <laughs> like that yeah. was, it went nowhere. If you can imagine, no one wanted to sing it with me. Um, it might've been all the dissonance and minor chords that were built into it, but they were beautiful and I stand by it. Anyway, I think we are- Is it recorded anywhere? Because <laughs> no. like I'll throw in the clip right there. <laughs> I wish, I mean, it might be, there's a chance that my husband has it somewhere, but I doubt it. I doubt that you'll get a copy of it. How about that? Um, okay. <laughs> it's not great. But the the idea that we are outwardly focused on an external certainty that we have placed everything on. We have everything riding on a certainty that we have a second life to come, that these bodies are not our bodies, that we will be raised up from the dead, that we will be reincarnated into these new versions of ourselves. And I'm sure there are people like, she used the word reincarnation. And I'm like, to be made incarnate, to be made into a body. Okay. <laughs> There's a rabbit trail for you. Um, I don't think we know how to step away from the certainty. And I think that that informs all of our responses. It has been, it has caused people who I love and respect to dismiss me faster than almost anything to say, I am completely uncertain about all of it. And I am certain that that's okay. Because even... Even the principles of Christianity, right? I'm uncertain. I can still believe them and allow those things to inform my faith, 
but I don't have to have certainty to go down that road and celebrate the mystery and the unknowability of all of it. And I think when it comes to grief, because there is zero certainty, because there is no clear answer, there's no path forward for one person that fits every person. I mean, there's literally no formula. We've been so spoon fed the five stages of grief as if they're real, which they're not. They were misnomers. You know, they were observations created to say, this is what terminally ill patients are experiencing. This is, you know, generally speaking, and we've turned it into this program. Well, grief can't be programmed. It can't be taught. It can't be, Hmm. it can't be theorized. It has to be experienced. And when you are immersed in a culture that wants to experience hope, the fruit of the spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How do you manifest those when you lack self-control because you can't stop crying? How do you manifest joy when you expect that you'll never stop feeling heavy? Well, you mask the heavy instead of recognizing that it is possible to feel two, maybe three or four things at one time. Our human complexity is so rich. And because we have simplified it down to, I am not worthy but God is worthy, then we are dismissing all of our humanity along the way. Hmm, and it yeah. just, it's not, it was never intended to work that way. That's so good. Mm. It's your next book. <laughs> yeah, I like your piece on certainty there. And that certainty or the pursuit of certainty produces a level of fabrication of what it, wholeness looks like. Oh, yeah. It needs that because it shies away from truth, maybe. It shies away from the human experience, so. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, I I can best describe what that looks like in people who say, when will I be healed? When will I be done grieving? And I have to Mm. say, you're, you're healing. Healing mm-hmm. is an ongoing, lifelong experience through all things. Yeah, if yeah, you're picked yeah. on in kindergarten, you're not healed from it. You're healing. That's what big T okay. trauma and little T trauma looks like. Like things come up and we find ways to heal and integrate them into who we are and not let them mm-hmm. cause us damage going ongoing, but integrate like this is part of who we are. Just this morning, a friend and I were saying, man, if I could go back 20 years, I would do it. And I was like, I liked 18. I was great. Yeah, I'd go back. And she's like, but would you change anything? And I said, absolutely not. I wouldn't be who I am. And I have fought tooth and nail to be who I am today. And while there are experiences I wish I didn't have, I still stand by, I wouldn't change it because I am healing. And I didn't get here because things were easy. I got here because things were real. Things were hard. They were complicated. And yet through every stage of it, I have felt connected and learned how to deepen my understanding of my role in this world, of my infinite tininess by standing, you know, oceanside and realizing I can be really upset about this or I could realize so much of this is meaningless or it means everything because I don't know for sure and I can be at peace in that unknowing. Okay. You know, I've had to struggle for that perspective and it's been worth it, but the certainty of an outcome when it comes to healing is only based upon your willingness to get intentional with it. So, you know, ongoing healing and grieving, grief is always with us, but grieving is not. Grieving is the work. Grieving is the act. Grief is something we encounter, but I'm not always overcome by grief. Sometimes I'm just aware of it. Sometimes I'm very overcome by it and I'm actively grieving. And I think that that, you know, distinguishing the two and just, again, learning what grief is, what it isn't, validating our disenfranchised grief recognizing our ambiguous grief when somebody like we get a prognosis and then we start grieving before they're gone. That's ambiguous grief that we put aside all the time. And Hmm. anyway, I'm going down a rabbit trail of epic proportions right now. So I'll stop. Grief is a normative experience, part of the human experience. Do you find, or would you ascribe to an idea of grief being in every aspect? Of life? Yeah, absolutely. You know, people like to say, at least in the, my church world, um, a flower can't bloom until the seed dies. And I say, yeah, that's true. Um, but where did the seed come from? It came from the flower dying. It's cyclical and grief is. And the more that we recognize 
that we're going to encounter grief in all the aspects. Like we're excited for a new job, but we're leaving relationships behind. It is necessary to know how to hold space for ourselves to feel multiple emotions at once, to validate that we are not our feelings, but we have feelings. You know, we can experience great sorrow and not be defined by it, but allow it to inform who we are becoming and where we're headed. And that integration of our understanding of feeling and emotion and loss and joy and all of the the, uh, comfortable emotions as well, it's just a matter of learning how to have conversations about emotion without being weird about it and minimizing it away and saying, well, but Jesus is faithful. So Mm. we're good. Like, yes, and yet (laughs) we've got all this pain. Does that negate your faith? For some people, it totally does. Okay. In my instance, it didn't. Mm. It didn't invalidate my faith. It actually helped me reconcile the humanity of Mm. the man of Jesus, Mm. and it helped me reconcile the the bigness of my lack of understanding. Mm. Yeah. I I mean, it always goes back to certainty for me because I'm like, oh, that's good. No, that's good. That those things drew you into a greater depth of not merely understanding and knowledge, but it was an understanding of of the humanity, of, of connecting with Jesus in that way, mm-hmm. being drawn deeper into this story. I'll have to sit with your notion of I wouldn't change anything. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'll have to sit with that. I don't, I don't know if I'm there. I don't. I don't think I like that. It's but okay. I have to sit on it. It's a good one. You can be as it's uncomfortable with that for as long as you need to, because I really was too, to be honest. Like I haven't lived a charmed life. It'd be really easy to be like, yeah, everything was great, everything was easy. Well, but that's the thing, right? Like yeah. I, I, I think I wrote about this briefly, but. I am jealous, perhaps jealousy is not the right word, but I am jealous of those folks who never had a hard time for whatever reason. Because in some way and sense, it's like that is a sense of liberation that everyone should have been able to experience. Mm -hmm. And so a notion that I wouldn't change anything. Yeah, no, actually, I, I, I wouldn't mind fewer systemic impediments. I, don't know, I guess I couldn't <laughs> change some of those pieces, right? Right. But, like, because the world ought to be better. Right. And too bad it ain't. I think I relate, I relate to you so much in that regard because I think of the global things like we've talked about before. Why can't I make an impact right now to shift all of it? Why is everything so hard for so many people? And why is it so complicated to explain that there should be equal access to fresh water or food distribution systems that are actually meaningful Mm. for people? Why do Mm. people live in food deserts when we're in America and there's transportation a thousand minutes, you know, trucks everywhere all the time? It's the same thing with me for grief when it comes down to how can I impact and encourage Mm. a group of people? I can't do it well on a grand scale because everyone who is set on misunderstanding me will always misunderstand me. They're going to look for one thing I say mm. to disqualify. But if I can write something that is meaningful for someone's aunt and that woman changes a pattern in her life that has caused her grief or caused her harm. And then she carries that into someone else. That for me is that's evangelizing. Like that's the salvation story to me is how do I bring life back to someone else that I may not ever get to see or be a part of their life. But if something that I can carry brings healing and restoration to them, then I'm going to do it that way. And that's where I go. Like, I would love to go back and change like the eighties, the eighties were chaos. There was a lot of really bad stuff that was put in place in the eighties that affects us today and the nineties and the two thousands <laughs> and all of it. But the I don't 80s have... is so specific. <laughs> well, that was specifically the eighties. I just think the eighties needed some help. Um, uh, yeah, but I just, you know, I can't influence. I don't have that kind of power, and honestly, I don't want it. I just want to know that at the end of this whole uncertain journey, have I made an impact that improved the lives of people around me? Did they feel fully alive? Goal achieved. Mm. Like that's yes. what I'm chasing. Yes. And that doesn't necessarily mean hmm. 
behaviors that are frowned upon or experiences that are harmful. You know, it's, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I don't care about that. I care about what does fully alive mean to me and how do I find it and what does it look like to teach others to find it for themselves rather than prescribing what fully alive means for them.